0: Hello and welcome to Pot Infuse, a podcast all about science, maths and the world around us from the maths and physical sciences faculty at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host, Laura Hewison, and I am completely unqualified to be here. I press the buttons, but I'm very enthusiastic. With me as always from MAPS is my excellent co-host, the much more qualified Sophie Lane, and our guest today is extremely qualified to be here. She is the Head of Mathematics at UCL, Professor Helen Wilson. Thank you for being here today.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Uh, so, Sophie, I suppose as the person in the room who has more expertise in the area than, than I do, mm-hmm. did you want to talk to Helen a little bit about her areas of research and focus?
2: Yeah. So I just wanted to hear about what your main area of research is and how you kind of got into it.
1: So, my main area of research is complex fluids. So, I study the kind of fluids that don't fit into the standard model. So, we can model air, water, and many other fluids using one set of equations, a single set that scales for a load of different systems. Those are called Newtonian fluids. And I basically study everything else, which ranges from a whole different range of foodstuffs to pharmaceutical products lots of biological materials and also industrial things such as molten plastics that kind of thing so you like the rebels absolutely (laughs) the
0: stuff that doesn't make sense we're not
1: touching the stuff that's just too easy we want the stuff that squidges
2: how do you like find them do you just kind of look at it and go like that seems
1: to be doing something super weird to be honest as a mathematician i look at the equations that emerge from them rather than looking for the new materials. So most of that stuff happened before I came on the scene. So people have been studying things like pastes for probably centuries, I imagine. But the equations to study them have only come about relatively recently.
0: Is there an equation to study quince paste, for example?
1: There is no single equation that works for all of these complex fluids. There probably is an equation for quince paste. Whether it's the same one as for toothpaste, I don't know.
2: That's really interesting. Yeah, see, so that was going to be my next question. Are there any fluids that have com- that are like have the common equation, but that you it's wouldn't expect?
1: Nothing quite as simple as the water and air thing, but there are lots of what's called viscoelastic fluids. So these will be things that have a memory. They have a a molecule in them that can be stretched by the flow, and then they can. Basically, remember that they've been through that stretching flow and suddenly release the stored elastic energy at a later stage when you're not expecting it. And shampoo and tomato soup fit into that category and you wouldn't think they'd be the same. Mm. Uh, and many other things with polymers in behave the same. There's also a lot of similarity between different pastes, but that you probably would have expected.
0: I uh, Well, I know that I definitely expected that. Uh, as <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Do you have... A favourite non-Newtonian fluid, then, that just kind of... It, it, when you think about that one, you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's the fluid for me.
1: It's got to be something really bouncy. So molten mozzarella or some other polymeric material. Those Hang are on. the ones that really... Molten
2: mozzarella? So that's not... Yes. Yeah, well, you see, well, you're how, thinking, well, how do you is that really molten? a liquid?
1: Well, so mozzarella, once you've cooked it, becomes very stringy. And it will stretch, but it'll pull back a little bit. But actually, if you just tip it, it will flow. Ah! And so it's borderline whether it's liquid or solid. And that's a common feature across quite a lot of the complex fluids, that actually it's really borderline whether they are fluids.
2: See, that's something I feel like I feel like I've seen a lot of molten mozzarella in my life, and it's
0: never actually occurred to me <laughs> that it's behaving
2: both <laughs> a non
0: and as a liquid. I've seen a lot of molten mozzarella that I've just decided to leave in a pan for days on end. So now I know that it's probably because I didn't fully understand the science behind <laughs> it. If you say so. So when you go to a restaurant, do you kind of look at everything on your plate and you're like, "What's? how's that one different to that one?
1: I went to a conference last week and we had all sorts of rheologically interesting things on the menu from foam to gel to uh, panna cotta is beautiful in that it's not flowing if it's done right. But a very, very small change in the cooking will make it into a full on liquid that does not hold its shape.
2: See, I knew academia was like this. So you all you say you're going off to conferences and we all think, oh, wow, they're going to do some really like, hard-hitting, really like tough academic work and then really you're just like poking at panna cotta, like, You've got to eat somewhere. as well.
0: I do know, Helen, that you've looked at with some of your PhD students the science of chocolate fountain or the maths behind true. chocolate fountains. That's
1: true. We did have a project on the chocolate fountain. Now, chocolate is not actually a very non-Newtonian fluid. You can almost get away with modelling it the same as water or honey. But nonetheless, it was a really interesting project to do. We studied how the chocolate goes up the pipe in the middle, how it goes along the dome as it's slowly descending, and then the falling sheet, which is the bit you dip your strawberries into. Um, the key things we discovered was were that um, on the dome, you can do some really beautiful mathematics and absolutely use the same equations and get the same results as you do for lava flow down a volcano. That ah, was pretty cool. That is cool. And the falling sheet, if you look at them, they fall inwards, which is quite surprising. That's not a non-Newtonian effect at all. Um, there's a water bell thing in the entrance lobby of the British Library that does exactly the same thing with water. It falls inwards because of surface tension.
0: Right. So did you expect that going in or were you...
1: I had an inkling, but I'd asked around colleagues as to why they thought it went inwards, because the first time I saw it, I had no idea. And lots of people had different ideas, so we... we We were looking for...
0: I really do. I just had this mental image of you and some PhD students toting a chocolate fountain through the halls of UCL going, Oi, come
2: have a look at this. Why is it doing that? (laughs) Bring the strawberries. So is that like where that project came from is that you looked at a chocolate fountain and were like, what on earth is going on there? Absolutely.
1: I went to a wedding fair because I was planning on getting married and there was a chocolate fountain and I made them turn it off and on again and off and on again (laughs) so I could see how this thing started and I couldn't work out what was going on and then eventually I made it into a project and my project student worked it out. But
0: I... I'd love to talk about chocolate fountains all day, but the reason we have you on for this special episode today, Helen, and not part for the fact that you're incredibly accomplished, um, is we're also celebrating Ada Lovelace Day. Um, So I I suppose do you know a lot about Ada? Did you hear about Ada as a young undergraduate? No, I
1: didn't at all. Um, The first I heard of Ada Lovelace was, I think, probably this time last year when Hannah Fry was doing the documentary about her.
0: Really? And so I sort of
1: vaguely, I knew the name. I'd heard of the Ada Lovelace day, but I'd never really known who she was or what she did. I know a bit more now.
0: Hmm. And I wonder why that is, I suppose. Something interesting when I was looking into my research was I, I googled famous mathematicians. And of course, there's a whole list that comes up on Google. Four of them were women. And I suppose, can you guess what those, what those four were? Ada is one.
1: Emmy Noether. Yes, presumably one Yes, who invented Notherian rings, which are a beautiful construct in algebra. Um, I would imagine Sofia Kovaleskaya would be one who had the Kovaleskaya no, top. No, no, she doesn't make the list. No,
0: what is the Kovaleskaya top?
1: Um, so if you study an ordinary spinning top, uh, the equations which describe it were studied earlier, uh, maybe a century earlier, but they had no exact solutions for a motion that you could write down the entire track of motion of, of these things. And she discovered that if you design one so that two of its moments of inertia are identical and the third one is half of the value of the first two, then you can get an exact analytical solution. It's a really beautiful piece of mathematics. You can't create this top and, and spin it, because unfortunately the point that it spins, apart, spins about is not one of its ends, so you can't stand it on the table while it's doing it. You'd have to do it in space. But it's nonetheless really beautiful mathematics.
0: Okay. Any any guesses on the last two? Um, Florence Nightingale. N- no, she Kate. She did come up though, um, but in my further research, she wasn't right. in the Google yeah. top listing. Sophie, have you got any idea? Oh
2: no, I, I, don't, I don't know. You've made me very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can't think of any. <laughs>
0: well, the other two were uh, somebody called Hyp Hypotenya. Oh. Hypatia. Hypatia. Ancient Egypt.
1: Yes. Yes, now I have heard of her. I tended to sort of discount her as being ancient history and therefore not relevant, but that's unfair, <laughs> isn't it? Well, I
0: had slightly, because she's
1: she's described as,
0: a, you know, the accomplished woman. She's a philosopher, an astronomer and a mathematician, but she did live in ancient Egyptian times. There just wasn't a lot of philosophy or maths or astronomy.
2: You know, you could you had time to do all three because mm. they just hadn't discovered that much of it yes. yet. <laughs> Especially astronomy.
1: I mean, yeah, exactly. what were they looking through? It was just, just naked eye, right?
0: Pretty much, yeah. There's a big thing in the sky. I'd like to give that one a name <laughs> done, uh, and the other one was Marie Sof- Sophie Germain.
1: Ah, yes. Okay, I should I should have thought of Germain, mm. but I'm not really familiar with her mathematics.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I. Obviously. What can you tell us? <laughs> <laughs> Not much, apart from the fact that she, she was a French mathematician, a physicist and also a philosopher. So there's kind of branching again that, that whole maths and, and philosophy kind of tightrope. So I suppose that does bring us around to the, the reason of why we need something like an Ada Lovelace day. Um, just a very quick bit about Ada Lovelace. You know a little bit about her, Sophie.
2: Ada Lovelace, for those who don't know, was an English mathematician and writer who collaborated with Charles Babbage on his proposed mechanical general-purpose computer, The Analytical Engine. She wrote what is now considered to be the first computer programme. She saw the creative possibilities for a programme and computers, and she published what we would now call a computer programme to generate... Bernoulli numbers. Am I pronouncing that right? Do
0: you
1: know? Bernoulli.
2: Bernoulli. Bernoulli numbers.
0: Ada Lovelace Day also has a little connection to UCL as one of Ada's tutors by correspondence was Augustus de Morgan and he was UCL's first professor of mathematics. So yeah, unfortunately Ada died at the age of 36 so her work was never really appreciated I suppose in her lifetime. Mm, it's it, tragic. It wasn't until Alan Turing in the 40s that it was really put into practice. She was the first one I think to really think about the creative possibilities of what computer programming could do and you know how we've got memes now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Ada. Thanks Ada. <laughs> so the reason I suppose we need a day like this is because there's Not a huge amount of women in STEM. Is that still the case, Helen?
1: It is improving. Um, So most places have a reasonably balanced undergraduate population in a maths department now.
0: I did see, I just wanted to throw this in there, I did see that Cambridge, only 17% of their mathematics undergraduates in 2017 were women.
1: Yes. Not saying
0: anything bad against them. A bit shady.
1: Something terrible has happened there because when I went there some years ago, (laughs) 25% of us were female. So how has it got so much worse?
0: I don't know. And and yeah, why do you think that there is such a gap? Um, I mean, Sophie, you did a degree in physics. I did quite recently. I
2: studied physics with astrophysics at Sussex. And I think we were... 20% 20% girls?
1: That's very good for physics because yeah. physics and computing are typically yeah, far worse worst. than mathematics.
0: Yeah. No. And it was... Um, why is that? Why is, why is physics and computing typically I've worse? always tried to
2: work this out because actually I think the comparison with chemistry between physics is really interesting because chemistry uses so many of the same skills and has a lot of the really similar foundations and chemistry is so much better than physics on the gender balance. It's really weird. Like it's a very strange disconnect because... And I think it's... I think it's the connection to engineering... And that's areas just taking a bit longer to catch up, and then obviously, like the less women there are in physics, the less women want to go into physics, and then it becomes like it more is of self-perpetuating, an uphill back. Yeah. isn't it? Yeah, completely. But um, I went to I went to an all-girls school. And I didn't even, I didn't notice that physics was a male dominated subject until I started telling people I was going to study physics, started going to like interviews and in open days and stuff. I think someone actually said to me, oh, we find a great husband doing a physics degree, which was, <laughs> so I didn't even know how to respond to that. But like, so I, I sort of realised it really suddenly. And it's interesting because I don't know if I'd known going, like, when, I, when I was choosing my A-levels that I was going to be, if I'd thought at that point, oh, I'm going to be one of the only girls in my class. I hope it wouldn't have put me off. But I don't actually know like maybe it would have mm. done maybe that
0: would have been but it just went completely over my head do you think it was because you went to an all-girls school that that kind of that perhaps unconscious bias of teachers being like oh maths physics mm,
2: i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised we had a lot of girls doing maths we had as many people doing maths in our school as we doing english at a level and everyone in my physics class went on to do either physics math or engineering at university level and i think it was all like but then we were a really small class compared to. So I don't know. It must be coming. Must be coming from somewhere.
0: What yeah. do you think the major challenges are then facing women who are thinking about a career in in mathematics?
1: I, I really don't know what the challenges are from. If if you've decided that that's what you want to do. I don't know what's in the way. I don't know if there is anything in the way. I certainly looking at university admissions, which I've seen in several places everywhere seems to be very keen to be open to girls and to be taking girls where girls apply. The problem seems to be at the application stage or maybe something else has gone wrong in Cambridge, who knows, but certainly here, we're taking about 50% girls across the maths degrees and that's, that's lovely. Um, and then when we get to the research student stage, suddenly, suddenly we have difficulty in keeping them. And so our research student population is much less balanced. It's much closer to the twenty-five percent level, rather than fifty percent, and that kind of generates on into what this well-known leaky pipeline effect. Yeah. <laughs> by the time you get to the top, you've only got one or two drips left.
0: <laughs> well, you are you you were quite far up the top right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm the final drip. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you study fluids.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Uh, we always have this conversation. That it's really hard to have. We used to have it on our physics course that we'd we'd say like, what's stopping white law? Why aren't there more of us? But the thing is, whatever is stopping women going into these courses, that they've not they didn't stop us. So yes. whatever the so factor we've, we've, is,
1: we've selected for the people who are not sensitive to whatever that yeah, was. Yeah,
2: whatever it is, it didn't work on us. So, I think it, like, it's worth talking to people who thought about it and then didn't do it. Yes. But then, obviously, everyone thinks that their choices are deeply personal and not at all to do with massive societal influences. And then you look at a trend and you think, well, like, they can't all possibly they can't all be have- just individuals.
0: Mm. Well, personally, I just wasn't very good at maths. So. Well, that is one of the hurdles,
1: but I would expect that to apply to a fair proportion of the male population as well.
0: Yes. And I think it, it definitely does. <laughs> so, What, what about your, your personal journey then? You mentioned that you, you went to Cambridge. Um, when did you first start thinking about a career like you have now?
1: I knew very, very early that I wanted to do a maths degree. Pretty much as soon as I knew there was such a thing, I thought I wanted to do it. And nothing shook me from that until I got to the end of the maths degree. And then I kind of teetered on the edge of the cliff going, oh... I I had a plan (laughs) I've done the plan now what do I do next and I really didn't have a clue I applied for a very broad range of jobs at that point with no particular thought that academia would take someone like me Um, I applied for all sorts of city jobs and civil service jobs and things that I would have hated and I think the people interviewing me by and large spotted that and I didn't get anything and I stayed on and did a postgraduate one-year diploma just because I had the option to and I felt it would look better on the CV than a year of being unemployed and somewhere in the course of that year I fell in love with it and went oh I I, I had just a snippet of reading research literature and understanding it and starting to put bits of it together and I thought this was fantastic and then I had the opportunity to do a PhD and I jumped at it Mm. and from there it sort of naturally flowed that you know obviously one of the things you consider after a PhD is a postdoc And obviously one of the things you consider after a postdoc is looking at academic jobs. And I happened to come out of my postdoc when a lot of institutions were having a big hiring spree ready for the uh, 2000 and small number RAE. And I was hired on that. So I was hired in October 2000 on a permanent post. And people of my age found it much easier to get permanent academic jobs than people one year older. It's really most unfortunate the way it was bunched up. They've redesigned the process now in the hope of spreading that out. But it did work for me, and I got a permanent job. Once I'd got it, I just found that I loved the teaching and I was enjoying the research, and so there was there was no reason to look anywhere else.
0: Do you think that there, for somebody who was thinking about going and doing a maths degree, there is a world of opportunity there open to them? They kind of they could take what they've learned and run with it in many different directions?
1: Absolutely. I, I have looked around my peers who did maths degrees and there is almost no career whose doors are closed with a maths degree. So my brother went and did economics because he wanted to be an accountant and he looked back and said, I wish I'd done maths because now I know I could have had my exact same career with a maths degree and I would have had more fun during the degree. So if you really love it, you should do it. Because almost nothing is closed. One of my friends is now a solicitor. Even things where you think you really ought to do something else, it's fine. You can do maths and still get there.
2: Mm. I think something I think about a lot of STEM degrees is that I think all degrees are really challenging and are loads of work. But STEM degrees, when you tell people that haven't done one that you've done one, they go, they don't go like ah, oh. they go like
1: ooh. Yes, definitely that.
2: And like I think that, that like does translate to like, like you know if you're applying for a job like a maths degree. Yes, it's very shiny
1: it is. and impressive. It, it's definitely a big point on a CV. It's not going to walk you through the door of anything, but it definitely helps.
0: Mm. Um, so I suppose uh, out there at the moment, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening and a lot of really cool, high-powered maths women. It's a lot better than in Ada's Day. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You'd hope. Yeah. Can, can you think of any really cool highlights that are out there at the moment that you think our wonderful listeners should should hear about.
1: Highlights of mathematics going on being done by women yeah. all over the country. If you can think of it. There aren't that many who are doing stuff that I know about. That's mm. the trouble. I, I know the women because they start to have a higher profile but I don't know their work.
0: Mm. Mm. I wonder how you get that out there then. How do you it's, it's the, it's Well a lot of maths
1: research is not really easy to communicate with anyone outside mm. of your field. So they they communicate it to the people who can take it and run with it, and then those people take it and run with it, and that's the way that the research grows. But pure is very um, I don't want to say siloed, because actually there are really exciting things happening when different branches talk to each other. But it is very high level. Someone from completely outside, someone like me.
0: Not, not no, <laughs> not like you.
1: someone like me can't understand the highest level of pure mass research in an hour-long seminar. It's already too high level for that.
0: Wow. So what, what is the highest level of pure maths research being used for? What, what are they... Depends which
1: field but for instance number theory um, is the underlying theory behind all of cryptography and security. So every banking system, telephone system, whatever is secured using number theory and the cutting edge of pure maths research could in theory At any moment, bring it all crashing down by finding a really easy way to factorise enormous numbers. Vaguely unsettling, (laughs) and highly unlikely.
0: (laughs) We're going to hold you to that.
1: (laughs) Um, I think if that's gone wrong, I won't. You won't need to come after me. The whole world will have just fallen apart.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) When that (laughs) happens, "Hmm."
1: Helen said (laughs) this might happen.
0: Maths-related Armageddon. (laughs) (laughs) You could model that, couldn't you? You could model maths-related armageddon's and just see you know what's the
2: what are
1: the what's the worst we could do
2: (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask um, earlier saying that you had your cliff edge moment at the end of your undergraduate that's right yeah because that's something I think is interesting because I finished my undergraduate and I decided I didn't want to go any further down academia and I think it says I think there's a little there's a little jump between undergraduate level and going into research where you've not, you know, most students will have done like a final year research project projects, but being a research student is so different than being a taught student. Yes. And that it's, you know, I think, and obviously with like a lot of women aren't leaping over that. And
1: yeah, perhaps that's an intimidating barrier. Yeah. Although the, I would hope that the final year research project was a really good way to get a taste for it and yeah. decide if that was something that, that you like. But everywhere I've been, there are always some research students who start and then reasonably quickly like in the first six to nine months decide that actually they don't like the uncertainty of working with things where they don't know when they've got the right answer and there might not be a way through this problem and it it takes a particular mindset to live in that zone of there is a lot here that I don't know Mm. and to actually spend your life there you've got to be comfortable with with stupidity really and some people just aren't maybe there's a gender bias in there. I I really don't know. I've become very comfortable
0: with stupidity. (laughs) It's how I live my life. (laughs) Um, But that kind of brings me on to my final question, Helen. Is maths an art or a science?
1: Learning to use the tools of maths and becoming a practitioner of those tools, that's a science. But what you do with it has a distinct element of art in it. It is creative. You are selecting tools and, in some cases, creating new tools for the problems as they present themselves, and yet it, it can't be considered to be pure science, I don't think.
2: Here's a question, um, who is, do you have a maths hero? and Who are they and why?
1: I think in terms of local effects on me, Actually, my hero, or in fact, heroine, would be Professor Susan Brown, who was the first female professor in my department. And she was still working here when I arrived as a lecturer. And she was very quiet and understated. She had this hugely impressive research portfolio, which I had absolutely no idea about. But she had taught maths to the engineers for 39 years. And she was as proud of the fact that she had excellent student evaluations on those and the students were happy as she was of this incredible research and she just showed me how you can get on and do this job really well in all aspects while incidentally being female and she wasn't making a fuss about being female she was just getting on with the job and it wasn't until she died last year that I realized how much that had subliminally affected me and my my ability to visualize myself in the place that I now am
2: it's a shame that she never got to see you as head
1: yes that would have been. yes it is mm.
2: I, I know exactly what you mean about seeing women just getting on with things and that being really powerful and then but how do you feel like that sort of works with like the Athena Swan and do you think they need to go kind of hand in hand or do you think?
1: Yes I think the Athena Swan is designed to deal with a situation where there is a lack and I was lucky that Susan was there but not every department had a Susan to be a role model for my generation there was no one at my previous institution Um, and even if there isn't a role model in your institution, if Athena is doing its job properly and bringing in the sort of change that should make life fairer, then that's got to be a good thing.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this special Ada Lovelace Day edition of High Pot Infuse. We'll see you next time for more maps chat.